last week, for those of you who were not here, um, in talking through Matthew, I mentioned that I have done an outline here of the whole book of Matthew, where I've broken it down into themes and the sections that we're preaching through. So if anyone wants to follow in their own studies at home as we go through Matthew, the outline and look ahead and see the themes of the kingdom of God and King Jesus, I think this gives an overall grasp of what this man Matthew was aiming at when he wrote his story of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Last week, we spoke about the genealogy of Jesus, his bloodline and his roots and also his virgin birth. From the genealogy story, we learned that the Messiah embodies also the pain and the sin of our forefathers and said basically that no matter you know, what our own bloodline is and the sins of our forefathers and the effects of their sin, I don't believe that we are punished for the sins of our forefathers, but the effects of their sins come through the generations. And it can be genetic, psychological, emotional patterns of weakness and of sin that come out in our own life. And often what you hate in your parents, you end up doing and becoming, if you're not careful. What you despise most in others, especially those close to you, has a way, if you're not careful, of coming out in you. And this is part of the thing. And we asked for ministry, for people who, who felt that maybe there was still stuff in their own bloodline and generational sin and patterns that needed to be brought into the bloodline of Jesus and brought to Messiah. And the Lord did a number of things. But I'm sure what happened to some was it just was the beginning of uncovering stuff. For others, I think there was real breakthrough. And for others, maybe, apparently, you know, not much happened and you were left with questions. And so if you want to pursue some healing in this area, in your own life. You can call the office to work with you a little bit and pray at a, a deeper level um, in, in this area because it's a big area and touching on it once and then passing and going on maybe is not altogether fair. But at the same time, I trust in the sovereignty of God and He knows you and we're working through Matthew and when we call down the power, we trust God to go moggy and clap the devil and do everything. And what is not done, we try to work with and follow up and continue working with. And I encourage you, again, the first port of call always in this church is our home group and our home group leaders. And in the home group, disclose and share what God is raking up within you from last week and maybe also this week. I'm just mentioning this to say that as you sense God stirring up stuff, process it further with your home group. So let me read Matthew Chapter 2, the, the visit of the Magi. I think what I'll do is I'll read the story, that you get a picture of it, and then I'll make my comments. From verse 1, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, the Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah, you'll see in your English Bibles, it is the Christ, but it really is the Messiah, where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. This is from, I think it's Micah the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. When Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Jerusalem, saying, 
You go and make careful search for the child. As soon as you found him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented with him with gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream that they should not go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So that's the story, according to Matthew, of the visit of the Magi. Now what do we make of this? The purpose of Matthew in putting this story in, in his prologue, his introduction to Jesus, is simply to show that Jesus Christ, or Jesus, is the Christ, is the Jewish Messiah by the events of the visit of the Magi. And we know that Matthew, in the first two chapters of his book, is doing his prologue, his introduction, the first two chapters. From chapter 3, he starts working with his story of, of Jesus. But it's the introduction, and he's saying, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah because of his genealogy. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah because he was born of a virgin, and it was prophesied in Isaiah. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah because the Magi came to visit him, and the circumstance and the story shows us that this could only have happened for the Jewish king. That's the purpose of Matthew. And we live, I think, in the modern world now with a lot of the story of the Magi. And, and by the way, it's only unique to Matthew. It's not in Mark and it's not in Luke. And the story itself has been debated in academic theology as to its origins and its, its mythology, etc., etc. And I'm not going to go into all of those technicalities. But it is a unique story and it's unique to Matthew. And Matthew, the way he presents it, is trying to teach and say something to us, which I'm going to try and present to you this morning. But I first want to clarify some of the myths that we have today about the Magi. How many of you believe they are three kings? All three kings of Marion Three kings, they are actually named and they came from a certain place. Nowhere in the text. And the commentaries that I'm working with are very clear on this. In fact, one of the commentaries goes into the, the tradition where all this stuff came from, from the 3rd and 4th century in the church, where they said there were three kings because there were three gifts. Here it just says that there were magi that came. It doesn't say three. And the three gifts have no relation to three or five or ten magi. And they were certainly not kings. And I'll later on explain to you who the magi really were. Also, the other myth is that um, they came when Jesus was born and they bowed down at the manger and they gave him their gifts. Here it quite clearly says that they went to his home in verse 11 and they bowed before the child Jesus, not the baby Jesus. And so Herod killed all the babies in Bethlehem at, up to the age of two years old. So Jesus was something between one year old and two years old living in a home, no longer in the cave, swaddled in baby clothes, whatever you call it, in the mangers. None of that. See, that's the mythology that we have in our minds. Actually, it's all myths, really. Our Christmas story in terms of the Magi coming and bowing down. From the biblical text, you must understand, they had been there for at least a year in Bethlehem, and then the child was a baby child, and the star 
followed. And these people had been on a journey for a long time. Maybe weeks, maybe months. Where they came from in terms of the East, the consensus seems to be it's from the old Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iran, Persia, Iran, and came right across the, the deserts towards Jerusalem. And they first came to Jerusalem because their natural understanding was that it was, it was the capital of Israel and the king of the Jews would be born there because it's the city of the king. But they learned through the prophetic scriptures that it was not there. Okay, so that's just to knock out some of the mythology. Luke's story, in my understanding, deals with three issues. The socio-political issues, the supernatural, and the seekers, who are the magi. And the socio-political context is very important, because he begins this story by putting it immediately into its socio-political context. And he draws a contrast immediately between the King Herod and the one who's born the King of the Jews. And how the King Herod's maybe pointy or fat nose, I don't want to be personal about these things, but his nose was put out of joint immediately when he heard that the king of the Jews had been born. And he has a, a, a clash immediately. And what it says to us, you see, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. King Herod hears that there is a king of the Jews that was born. Immediately calls together the chief priests and, and it says the scribes. And they were simply the theologians and the legal, political, religious leaders, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who worked with this Gentile king who was king over that area at that time. And they were the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the theologians, which were the scribes, the study, the Jewish theologians of the Old Testament law, who were semi-lawyers, semi-theologians, because there was not the separation as we have in our modern day between spiritual, religious life, and secular life. The lawyers of the day were the theologians of the day, and vice versa, because Torah is, the God, is God's law, and Israel's political life was built on God's law. It was not secular law that, that the lawyers had to study. So this king consulted immediately with the Jewish leaders at his time, and said, what's all this that I hear about a Jewish king has been born, etc.? And they checked it out in the scriptures, and they said, yeah, Actually, it is prophesied that a king will be born. And we do hear from the prophecies it will be in Bethlehem. And suddenly there's a clash. That the status quo, the political power relationships are challenged by the vulnerability of this little baby. And the whole of Jerusalem is disturbed. The whole status quo is upset because a little baby has been born. And what is to me most amazing here, and you, I've not drawn out all the contrasts that Matthew puts in the story. But if you read carefully, you'll pick up at least five opposites that he contrasts that are implicit in the story. And this is one of them. And what he's basically saying is this. Wherever the presence of Messiah is, whenever God comes and God's people are represented, it constitutes a fundamental challenge to the power relationships in society. And the power relationship must not be proud or assume their place. And this political power was proud, deceptive, and repressive. You know, Herod was a particularly aggressive or violent king. He killed all the babies in Bethlehem. He deceived the Magi. Go and find out. When you find the baby, I will come and worship him. Manipulation, deception. Isn't that fairly typical of politicians and political power? We must pray for the politicians because they operate under enormous spiritual power interactions that try to seduce and deceive them 
through pride and the offer of power. You know, one of the biggest tests to human character is the offer of power. If you have power, it will immediately expose who you really are in terms of your character. Very, very, very few people can handle um, absolute power. Power corrupts absolute power, corrupts absoluteness. That's a, a, a phrase that comes from history. And so, we must understand, as Matthew works out his gospel, he constantly plays, and you'll see this repeated, the tension and struggle between Messiah and the Messianic community and the Jewish leaders and the secular powers of his day. And it's a constant clash and a constant clash because Messiah is born to rule and he's born to bring God's government to earth and spread God's government and establish God's government so that the secular government learns from God's government how to order society for the good of all and for the sake of peace and justice and shalom. And that has not changed in terms of the calling of the church up to this day. The church's role in society is to constitute a challenge to the powers and to be the conscience of our society by calling them to account for their pride, their deception, their repression. And look what happened in the apartheid years. Thank God that the church rose up in the apartheid era and was counted. Although it was people from the other color, a la Tutu, Chikani, even Busak, God bless them. But these people led us in our reluctance to challenge the white government and to wave the finger under Peter W. Buddha's nose and to say, Pharaoh, let God's people go. You're repressing us. And we've now entered into an era, at least legally, legislatively, of justice. But the justice and the freedom of the heart where racism changes is a Nochus story. We'll leave that until the millennium. Because some of us, I think, will only change when Jesus comes. But I will try to preach a bit more about those things as we go along. We must not forget our role as the church. The presence of Messiah. And you know what is the point of our challenge to the powers? Is our vulnerability. The church in its vulnerability, like the baby, constitutes a major disturbance to those powers that are proud and arrogant. And you know, the secret of our strength is our vulnerability. It's not our sophisticated power play. If we play the same game as the people in the world play, we've lost it. But if we are just who we are, little babies in arms, in other words, open, vulnerable, trusting, then somehow God in and through us extends His rule and His reign and challenges all the power relationships around us. Almost, in a sense, unbeknown to us. It's happening through us. That's the real thing, as opposed to the other thing. In any case, Jerusalem and Bethlehem is also contrasted. And that's the, that's the second among five contrasts here. And Jerusalem is the city of the king, the place of sophistication and leadership and Jewish um, power. And Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was a little rural country village, really. And it was the place of the poor peasants. And what's amazing, God constantly in history turns the societal values upside down. That which is born of God and is going to change the world most often comes to us from in among the poor, the broken, the marginalized, the outcasts, and the rural. And the sophisticated intellectual upper crust generally have to face a crisis of choice. Am I going to humble myself to go down there, over there, to those poor peasants? 
and believe what they say, Messiah is here. <laughs> and of course, immediately that too exposes character. It's a challenge. You know, there's a phrase that came to us through the Toronto blessing. Who remembers it? God offends the mind to expose the heart. You know, the so-called Toronto blessing, when people were you know, doing all sorts of things under the Spirit, and under a few other things too. No, no people were laughing and crying and chairs kicking and trembling and fish on the decks and all sorts of things happening. A lot of people's minds were offended. They couldn't relate to it. And you know, some people actually became aggressive and angry. And it's always the pattern of God. If this rock of Jesus Christ is a rock of an offense, and you can either stumble over this rock of an offense and get uptight and angry, he offends the mind to expose your or you can just trust what you don't know because God is greater than what you don't know. God does not require us to understand everything. He requires us to trust Him all the time. Because He made everything, including the devil. The devil's not out of control. He is under God's authority, ultimately. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one, but he cannot touch us. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. He cannot touch us unless he's got Father's permission. Because we belong to Father if we're born again. If you're not born again, you belong to another Father. You better change your allegiances quickly. So, here's the contrast between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Between the poor and the rich, between the uneducated and the educated, between the powerful and the weak. And Messiah often comes from the underside of society and it's an challenge to our character if we're going to bow down and humble ourselves and learn from where Messiah comes. And constantly the challenge to be simple, believing, trusting people as opposed to sophisticated, hungry, power-hungry people. This is what the story is saying. And the other implicit contrast here. The supernatural. It is quite clear that this guy Matthew constantly uses references to the Old Testament as proofs of prophecies or predictions that are now fulfilled in this man Jesus, who we later call Jesus of Nazareth. And twelve times this guy Matthew uses the phrase, it is fulfilled from the Old Testament. 52 times he quotes from the Old Testament. Matthew quotes from the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer in the New Testament. Matthew is the Old Testament theologian. He's a Jewish theologian. He quotes more from the Old Testament than any other writer in the New Testament. 52 quotes from the Old Testament. And basically what he's saying to you, I'm writing mainly to Jewish people. This is Matthew in his mind. But also a Gentile, because it was a mixed church by that time. And he's saying, I'm persuading you, I'm showing you and convincing you that supernaturally God spoke 700 years, 800 years, 600 years before and they're right now being fulfilled before you ask these prophecies. This guy Micah, the prophet, he lived 700 years before Christ and very specifically, he said, Bethlehem is the least among the cities or the towns of Judea, but out of Bethlehem will be born the king of Israel. And David who became king of Israel, was born in Bethlehem, this little village, in the year 1010 BC. That's at least one date that is fairly agreed upon by the, the commentators. So, the Messiah 
in the Jewish mind is clearly the son of David. And when Jesus is born in Bethlehem and is said to be the son of David in his line directly, he's born just like David the king. He is David's son. He is Messiah. And it's a fulfillment of the prediction of 700 years ago. This is supernatural. This is either right or wrong. There's no gray in between. And if it's right, it is God and I must believe it. If it is wrong, it is some manipulation of historical documents that appears to be 700 BC, but actually was much closer and is a try, is an attempt to fool us into thinking this is the Messiah. But of course, historically, that cannot be proven. In fact, it's proved the exact opposite. So it is God who supernaturally predicts and fulfills. Therefore, believe. That's actually what Matthew's trying to say. The star of Bethlehem is a supernatural event. Many people have tried to explain it in a natural cosmic phenomena. They talk about the, const- the alignment of Jupiter and Saturn at about 5 BC. There are other attempts. That there's one of the commentaries that goes into these astronomical attempts. Who of you have heard of David Block? A wonderful Christian man at Wits University. He's got an explanation for the star of David for a whole astronomical um, explanation. So he, he does not believe it was a supernatural phenomena. He believes that it was a natural phenomena, but maybe engineered supernaturally. Whether it's natural or supernatural, the star, is actually not Matthew's point. Matthew's point is simply this. God uses supernatural or natural signs in the sky, in life, in nature, to lead us to himself. That's actually the point that Matthew's making. And so, people, you and I need to check out what supernatural or natural signs happen in our lives that lead us to inquire and pursue until we have a revelation of God and we encounter God. Because that was the whole purpose of God giving the star to these magi. And the presence of the supernatural and the presence of God using the natural in our lives is a fairly common phenomenon if our eyes are open and if, if we are aware. And a sign, you know, if you're traveling from here to Krugersdorp, you go through these signs on the freeway. A sign doesn't mean you've arrived. A sign points you to something else. A sign is not an end in itself. So to study the star and check out why and is it natural or supernatural is not the point. It points to the Messiah. And God uses it. And you'll see later how amazing this becomes. But for the Jewish mind, the reference to the star immediately brings to mind what was well known in the Jewish circles of the day, the prophecy of Balaam in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, where he prophesied that God would raise up a star from Jacob who would rule and bring peace to Israel and defeat Israel's enemies. And one of the phrases that was attributed to Messiah was Jacob's star. And suddenly, if I was a Jewish reader in the time of Matthew, and I read about the star of Bethlehem, it would immediately connect me with the star of Jacob. And what is the sign of Israel? That they had to wear in Auschwitz and during the Nazi era? The star of Bethlehem. The star of David. It's very, it's at the heart of Jewish identity. It's at the heart of Messiah. And Matthew, a clever, skillful Jewish writer, talks and uses this story to show. Whether it's supernatural or, or not is not the point. God uses signs and wonders to lead us to himself. And if we're aware, we work with him. And also dreams and angels. In the first two chapters of Matthew, 
Four times he refers to angels, five times he refers to dreams, just in the first two chapters. And it's God's supernatural means of communication and warning with his people. God communicates supernaturally through angels and through dreams. And what is interesting here, the Magi were not Jews, they were not believers. In fact, if anything, they were in the other camp. They were astrologers, people who studied the stars for meaning and direction and advised the emperors and the kings as to what the stars and the wisdom, therefore the intelligences of spirit, were saying. And the amazing thing is God uses their studies, their superstition, to lead them to himself. And secondly, God warns them in a dream, in verse 12, that they must not go back to Herod. So he has unsaved people, using our evangelical terminology, unsaved people who God speaks to through dreams. How many of you know God speaks through dreams? How many of you know actually it's fairly normal and not extraordinary? And we should be aware of it. But the point here simply is with Matthew, every reference to dreams, every reference to angels is always in the context, God initiates it, it is not sought after. It is not asked for by any participant in the nativity scenes. God sovereignly sends an angel God sovereignly gives a dream, and always it's one-way traffic. There's not very much negotiation. So this whole idea of seeking angels, seeking dreams, the whole idea of trying to talk to angels, praying for dreams, is, is really unbiblical. Angels and spirit beings were created by God to live in the unseen world, and when they try to cross over into our dimension, God judged them and threw them out, and is put them in a remand prison until the end judgment. This is Genesis chapter 6. It says, when the sons of God came down out of the spirit realm and entered into the daughters of, of men, and those had intercourse with women, and the Nephilim were born, God judged those angels and has put them in a place called Tartarus, in a remand prison for the end judgment. Angels and spirit beings in God's economy are restricted to the spirit world and interact with the earthly world by his command, because he's king. And those that don't obey him are called demons, because they operate outside of his immediate will, as it were, and try to interact with human beings. And human beings who are on the other side try to cross over into the spirit world are called witches, who seek power and control over human affairs by spiritual power. They are witches. We are not called to control any human beings or any human affairs through spiritual power. We are called to worship God, who is all spiritual power. And if God in His sovereignty chooses to use us to control human affairs by His power, it's His choice. I'm His servant. I don't manipulate or use spiritual power. I don't seek after it or consult it. I seek God and consult God and worship God. This is the spirit of the Bible. So a lot of these angel movies, I thought, they're brainwashing the world into a worldview that is completely new age and spiritistic and is going to go more and more that way. One of the closest, I think, that partly represents the biblical ethos is touched by an angel. Because I think, as I've understood, maybe the story writer is a Christian. But even that, be careful of what it's saying to you. It's not always all biblical stuff. And Hebrews chapter 1 quite clearly says, angels are ministering spirits sent from God to minister to those who are the heirs of salvation. Heirs of salvation don't pray for angels or to angels. They worship God. And if God 
decides. He does. When they appear, we make sure our knees don't have too much fellowship and we receive the message that comes our way. And we say, Ya boss. And then they will say, No, don't call me boss. There's only one boss. Don't bow down to me. Get up. He's God. Don't worship me. I'm just a messenger. That's the spirit of the scripture, right? Lastly, the seekers. The Magi were astrologers, wise men, people who searched the wisdom literature and studied the stars for the sake of advising in the emperor court of the kings and the emperors in the Gentile nations of that day. So they used spiritual insight as well as the wisdom of their tradition through the books uh, to advise and to see direction. Okay, So they were unsaved people with a mixture of traditional wisdom and spiritual manipulation. And God uses their superstition and their inquiring minds to lead them to himself. I think that's fantastic. You know what God's going to do, people? Now I'm going to get revved up. God is going to turn hundreds of thousands of new ages and bring them into the kingdom. Because they are looking for all these gurus. And they're looking to space out on the ozone layer and become part of the universal consciousness and aromatherapy and reflexology and all of these things that just kind of are all part of it. You know what God's going to... I think there's a battle between good and evil. And God is well able when they're looking for spooks to present Jesus. He's not a spook. <laughs> you know, Costa told us a story. Eric and I heard this on Friday morning. At his conference, he's come back from America at a worship conference. There was a woman there that was all dressed kind of way out. And he had a word of knowledge over her. She was sitting on a chair and he saw her dancing first all around and a quite of a bit of a weird dance with her hands you know, going like this. And then she was sitting down after this and he had a word of knowledge to the effect that God says that the light is shining into you and driving away the darkness. And she immediately fell down on her knees and grabbed a hold of Costa's hand and held it close. And I said, and did she kiss your ring, Costa? <laughs> and God said, no, 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 no. <laughs> and she like cried and she said, why did you say that? Why did you say that the light is breaking in and driving away the darkness? And he said, no, but I, I don't know what it means, but I felt the Lord giving it to me. And she said, you know, I, I'm a Hare Krishna. I've just come from an ashram in the east somewhere. And for this whole week, I was invited to this conference. And I've been in this conference. And in this conference, I've met Jesus. And I realized what I've been looking for all the time is Jesus. So by worshipping Hare Krishna, she meets Jesus. Yippee! <laughs> by looking for the astrological stargazers, they are led to Messiah. And you know what? She also said, but I want to tell you, pray for me. Because Hare Krishna is here too. <laughs> Of course, they said, what do you mean? Hare Krishna is here. And he said, yesterday, a most amazing thing happened. While I was in the conference, someone brought a, a bottle of anointing oil and wanted to anoint me with oil. And as I looked at the bottle, I saw the picture of Hare Krishna on the bottle. So she said, I suddenly saw Hare Krishna is in this conference. And so, he, and so she said, where did you get that bottle of oil from? So I said, no, I was Hare Krishna, but I've prayed over it and I've rededicated it to Jesus, so it doesn't matter. But she refused to be anointed with that oil. Wise for her. <laughs> this bottle, I assure you, is from a good American evangelist. People, this supernatural sign that leads people to the Messiah requires a response. And these seekers, they were seekers, spiritual, intelligent seekers, seekers of knowledge, seekers of understanding, seekers of meaning of life. And our world is opening up out of a rational scientific worldview into an incredibly spiritually hungry world 
where they want answers of the ultimate and they want the experiences of the supernatural because the rational has not satisfied the demand of the human soul. The science and technology is creating a vacuum where there's an incredible appetite to know ultimate meaning. And we're going, this is the new century that we're going into. And I tell you, it is ripe for revival. It is ripe for revival in this new century. But you know, when God shows signs, it requires a response. What was the response of the Magi when they studied the stars and they saw this unique star and they began to follow it? They followed with great perseverance for weeks, if not months. And when they came, they saw bowed down and worshipped. But even before they came in Jerusalem, they inquired. In other words, it showed remarkable faith, remarkable perseverance, remarkable obedience, remarkable trust and commitment. And you know, I think of my life, and God tries to call me and lead me through natural or supernatural signs. Within five minutes, you know, it's going to upset my life a bit. So let's forget it. I've got to change my sleeping habits. I've got to change my eating habits. I've got to change the way I run my family. I've got to change my job habits or whatever. So let's leave it. Sometimes, not all times, sometimes God requires you to change almost everything before you have a revelation of the Messiah. Sometimes it requires a long journey of perseverance that brings into tension your whole family and your job and all sorts of other things before you really meet the Messiah face to face. These people showed great faith, great perseverance, as they followed what they believed to be some supernatural guidance from God. And then when they, when they saw, and they went through many obstacles, many, a lot of opposition, attempts at deception from the president, which God intervened and also spoke to them about. And so they saw. And when they saw, of course, they bowed down and they worshipped and they gave their gift. And that's the ultimate. And I want to say to you this morning, if there's any person and you are a seeker in your heart, you're not sure that you truly have bowed your knee to the Messiah and said, God, my life is not my own, it's yours. I give it to you. You can live your life in and through me and do with it what you want because you made me and I belong to you. If you've not yet done that, I encourage you this morning to come and to bow down before the Messiah. And for some of us Christians, we've been on a long journey through the wilderness and through the desert. And in the wilderness and in the desert, you've had little signs that God is showing you. Carry on, persevere, don't give up and die in the desert. Because He's going to bring you to the Messiah. And you will have a revelation of the Messiah. And what is interesting here is the revelation of the Messiah was first to the Jewish peasants. Mary and Joseph were poor Jewish peasants. They were rural people. They were not city people. The people in Bethlehem were the rural peasants and the poor, and they all came to know this little baby Jesus for at least a year or two before they escaped into Egypt and went further. And you know, God's revelation generally is first to the poor and the broken. Jesus says, those who think they know don't need much more. Those who know they don't know will be open to receiving. Those who think they are doing fine and are well don't need a doctor. Those who know they are sick are open to receive a doctor. And I am their doctor. When you're broken and poor and marginalized and struggling and suffering, then God has access to your heart. Therefore, don't get bitter. Don't get bitter and angry with God when you're broken and vulnerable because He's your last resort and you're cutting off your lifeline. 
God is in the boat when you're in the wilderness, in the storm, when you're broken and marginalized. God is there with you. Don't get angry with Him and cut Him off because He is your Savior. Which often is our tendency. We either fight or we withdraw and sulk. And God's calling us to be adults. Don't fight. Don't withdraw. Come into partnership and trust. And with me, let's calm the waves and the storms. We're adults here. Be mature. Take responsibility for your feelings and be my partner. I want to grow you up to share with me. How do you worship Jesus? What do you give to Jesus? These gifts were kingly gifts, expensive gifts. Gold, frankincense and myrrh. And don't spiritualize this. The gold is the kingly, the royal presence of Jesus. The frankincense is the divinity. The myrrh is the suffering. Attempts at spiritualizing those I don't think are very helpful. The point that Matthew's making, in the Middle East it was a common thing that when you met someone for the first time you gave them a gift. And if you really were an esteemed guest at a, at a meal in the Middle East, you had to eat the goat's eye that was floating around in the soup. And if you didn't eat the goat's eye and burp after the meal in appreciation for it, then you were embarrassing your host. You had to go bleh, and, and the louder and longer the more you appreciated the hospitality that was, that was given to you. You see, so to give a gift and to give the goat's eye in the meal was a great compliment. But what Matthew is saying is these people didn't just come with gifts. These people didn't just burp after the meal. These people opened their treasures and they gave very expensive kingly gifts. They gave gifts fit for the king. In fact, they gave what they really treasured most. That's the point that Matthew's making. It's got nothing to do with symbolic, spiritualized, prophetic about Jesus' death and frankincense and deity and all of that stuff. That's not accurate exegesis. What it's saying is this. Genuinely, how do you worship God? Do you give Him of your convenience or do you give Him of your whole life? Do you give God that which you treasure most or do you give God of your small change? Do you give God of your spare time or do you give God your time and your life? <laughs> do you fit God into your life conveniently so it suits you? Or do you worship Him with the whole of your life where that which you treasure most is handed over to Him? And you entrust your dearest and your nearest to God and you put it in His hands and you don't take it back and you trust Him with it because that's your act of worship. And of course now I can really go to town in terms of the Gauteng environment. Because I think a lot of us Play God at the point where it's convenient for us. And most of the time we run our lives on our terms and our way, largely in the name of survival for number one. And I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm just saying it's incredibly tragic that we can't rise with faith above the, the level of survival and enjoy the richness of God by actually worshipping Him and not using Him as our convenience and giving Him our small change when it's okay with us. He is king. He, he's the creator of everything. My life belongs to him. Am I going to give it? Unreservedly, or am I going to give it conditionally on my terms? For my convenience? I don't think it's acceptable. So, what is the Lord saying to us? Jesus is our only hope in life. And He will use whatever means to bring us to Him. And when we come to Him, 
We must bow down and give them that which we treasure most, which is our life, our family, our resources, and trust Him with it, because it's our only adequate act of worship. Because He is the King. And the rich must come down to the uneducated. The city must go to the village. The powerful must come down to the baby. We must bow down. Because that's where Messiah is. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, we do want to say, you are Messiah. You are King and we worship you. And Lord, we do want to bow down and give you that which we treasure most. Oh Lord, we honor you. We salute you. We say, you have saved us. You have forgiven us. You have called us. You have led us. You keep us. You provide for us. You are our everything. To whom else shall we go? You are life to us. Without you, we lose all meaning. Without you, we lose life itself. Oh Lord, we worship you. We worship you. And we pray, send your Holy Spirit now again to minister and to bring your power to release people in the name of Jesus. So I bless you. As you stand there, receive the power of God. In the name of Jesus, receive the Holy Spirit.